Welcome to Juxtapod. Thanks for tuning in to our very first episode. I'm your host, Mariam Zaidi. Today, we're going to look at the gendered impacts of COVID-19. I'm joined by Andram Sultana, who is the National Director of Public Policy and Strategic Communications at YWCA Canada, which is the country's largest and oldest gender equity organization. Anjum is the primary author and operations lead for the Feminist Economic Recovery Plan, which focuses on the idea that there can be no economic recovery if we do not place women, two-spirit people, and gender-diverse people at the forefront. We talked about the specific gendered impacts of COVID-19 and the importance of adopting an intersectional lens to move forward with equitable solutions. We also talk about the ways in which this pandemic has shed light on existing structural issues in our society and where we can begin if we want to mobilize change. The Feminist Economic Recovery Plan highlights eight pillars to help us reimagine our future and offers corresponding policy suggestions. You can visit feministrecovery.ca to read the plan and learn more. Here's my conversation with Anjum. Jim, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Our listeners will have heard a little bit about your experience with the YWCA and your role in drafting the Feminist Economic Recovery Plan. Can you tell us a bit more about your history and what led you to the YWCA and the work that you do now? So I've been with the YWCA Canada, the national office for the last two years and a bit. And before that, I was really much in the world of health equity research, uh, some policy and doing organizing in my free time. And I guess, you know, when I think about who I am, it really is something that I think has pushed my career trajectory in a number of different ways. You know, just thinking about being an immigrant myself and seeing firsthand in my family, you know, the impacts of that healthy immigrant effect and where you see disparities between people who come to this country and then people who were born here. Um, and then also the impacts on indigenous communities, right? And the impact of settler colonialism. And so that's something that's always been something I've been thinking about. So when I was thinking about where I want to go to university, what I want to study in my undergrad, um, health was definitely at the center of it. Um, And also neuroscience. So I did a double degree in um, neuroscience and health studies with a minor in psychology at the University of Toronto, uh, specifically the Scarborough campus. So that's where I did my undergrad. During that time, I did a co-op degree. And part of my co-op degree was looking at the political economy of health, specifically global health. So I've done some uh, work in the Global South. Specifically, a lot of my experiences were in Kenya and Tanzania. And actually, when I was at the University of Toronto, I did a lot of volunteer work with juxtaposition. So it was really nice. It's almost full circle being here today. And uh, while I was doing my global health work, I was realizing, you know, yes, I'm an immigrant. I'm a racialized person. I'm a woman. I'm, I'm at the intersection of all of these areas of inequities. But also, you know, what is my place being someone who was essentially raised in North America doing this global health work? So I was really, you know, unpacking that and problematizing that. Um, and I was really you know I was really interested in the migrant experience and I was really interested in you know the global forces that influence the experiences of migrants and immigrants and refugees and then also the health implications so 
after my undergrad, I was really transitioning more into urban health and the issues around equity seeking groups in the city of Toronto. And so when I was thinking about my next steps, um, a public health degree seemed a really good option and I'm really glad. Uh, so I did my um, master's in public health at the University of Toronto, so really um, you know, grounded in my hometown, if you will. And during that time, I spent a lot of my work around refugee health, immigrant health, uh, a bit of a global health, but I knew my next steps were interest, yes, in research, but more the applied research. So I went on to do a fellowship at the Wellesley Institute. So it was a two-year fellowship that I did there. And during that time, I was really grounded in not only research and analysis, but how do you actually take a report and see that systemic impact? That's what I was really passionate about because I had done academic research and I saw the impact that happens, but it takes a while longer. So how can you do that with more immediate results? And um, the Wellesley Institute was a perfect training ground for that. Uh, so really diving deep into policy development and strategic communications and knowledge translation. Um, and when I was thinking about what my next steps would be, I realized like, you know, a, a thread that was there throughout was gender and gender inequities. Um, you know, I had spent some time at Women's College Hospital and their research work and, and some of the other projects I was involved with. And so when an opportunity at the YWCA Canada came up, which is the largest and oldest gender equity organization in the country, and it was based in my hometown, I thought, why not? And uh, it's been amazing ever since. And so currently, I'm the National Director of Public Policy and Strategic Communications. And so I take a leadership role in um, mapping out not only our public policy and advocacy work, but also thinking about how do we get not just government, but all of society caring about these issues. So that's where the strategic communications hat comes in. And I'll say, you know, many of the issues I work on, I was working on before, like very much grounded in the social determinants of health. So looking at how housing and immigration and jobs impact gender equity. And so, you know, these are critical social determinants of health. But before I was looking at them from a health lens. Now I'm looking at the same issues from a gender justice lens. What about 2020 has presented this urgency to look at the gendered impacts of COVID-19? What's special about this pandemic and why do we need to focus on this issue? So this pandemic, all the data points have been talking about this economically, socially. This has had devastating gendered impacts. Uh, and what's interesting is, you know, at the start of this year, the pandemic was not in my work plan. It was not on anyone's radar. What was on people's radar was the 25th year anniversary of the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action on Gender Equality. So back in 1995, uh, civil society organizations and human rights activists from around the world came together in Beijing and developed the most comprehensive platform on gender equality the world has ever seen. This international uh, platform document and what's quite sad and what is at risk during this pandemic is all of the progress we've made over the last 25 years. RBC Economics tells us in their recent study that women's labor market participation has dropped to levels not seen since the 1980s and so there is this urgency, there is this fear that not only is this going to impact gender equality in the short term, this can deepen inequities for decades. And so that's why we are consistently pushing this conversation 
because we need to take action because unless we do something now, we risk all the progress we've made so far. How were you motivated to write this feminist economic recovery plan? When did you notice that there was a need for something like this? So this is a great question. And I will say, you know, during March, when, you know, the pandemic really was impacting Canada through lockdowns and public health measures, and when also the World Health Organization called it a pandemic, right away, um, you know, of course, the health impacts, we were thinking about that as a YWCA community, we operate essential services across the country. So housing and shelter services and public health uh, and, uh, and uh, childcare services. So how do we keep ourselves safe? while still continuing to operate these essential services. So, you know, personal protective equipment, uh, cleaning, quarantine policies. But also, uh, you know, coming from a global health background, my public health background, um, we know that in general, um, past pandemics have shown us that there are inequitable impacts and specifically gendered impacts. So we see this, for example, um, when it came to the Ebola crisis. And while I was actually at the Dalwana School of Public Health, I was part of a, uh, an initiative called the Ebola Working Group. So these were some of the issues we were talking about uh, back when I was in grad school. And with this current pandemic, we're seeing the same issues materialize around uh, you know, women in particular being disproportionately impacted, as well as other equity-seeking groups. Uh, and so um, on March 11th, the World Health Organization called this a pandemic. Across the country, our YWCAs were mobilizing and meeting and convening on a regular basis to think about what is happening in uh, Vancouver, what is happening in Yellowknife, what is happening in St. John's around the gendered impacts. And, you know, through our work, we were talking a lot about the service delivery impacts, right? How do we deliver programs and essential services and help communities who are in crisis? Uh, but we were also thinking about the long-term view because we knew past pandemics have shown us the gendered impacts and not only the gendered impacts in the here and now, but for, you know, decades to come. And so for us, as a pan-Canadian organization, it was really important for us to not only document, but also figure out how do we build back better? How do we ensure that we are better prepared for the next crisis and be more resilient? And so. Uh, in April, so mid-April, we also saw that um, for the first time ever, the state of Hawaii actually put out a feminist economic recovery plan, their Status of Women Commission. And so when we saw that, we were already doing this work, speaking with stakeholders across the country, but we realized we had a real opportunity to translate all of those insights into uh, evidence-informed, lived experience-informed, service delivery-informed uh, policy recommendations. And that's what we set forth to do. Uh, so over a period of two to three months, we essentially researched, analyzed, did environmental scans, did drafting, designing, everything, uh, and put this out at the end of July. And I'm really, really happy to share the entire report from start to finish, from conceptualization to drafting to even design, was all done by young women of color. So in our, in our plan, we talk a lot about working and uh, leading uh, with the communities who are most impacted. And I'm really glad to say that even in the way we designed our process, we were trying to do that as much as we could. Right, so it's coming from communities that are being represented in the report. So it's not just other people speaking about them. And 
Yeah, okay, that's amazing. So your report looks at the gendered impacts of COVID-19 on women, but it also looks at the effect on two-spirit people and gender-diverse people. What is unique about this situation that has come out of the pandemic raises these issues and rings the alarm, so to speak? Great question. So I think in many ways, um, and my CEO, Maya Roy, says this um, has, has said this before to me, this pandemic has shown us where society is broken. Many of the issues, whether it's um, the homelessness crisis or um, pay inequities or the lack of you know, access to paid sick leave, for example, all of these issues that are becoming real concerns, even more so during this time, were issues before. And so when I think about who was most impacted, so women, two-spirit, and gender-diverse people, um, they were many of uh, a part of the communities that were most impacted because of misogyny and patriarchy that's built into our society, that's built into our systems. And so in many ways, this pandemic put a, an increased spotlight on it. And so part of what we also saw is that Canada has never faced a pandemic and economic recession quite like this. When we look at previous recessions, oftentimes the jobs that were lost or the sectors that were most impacted were what we call uh, men-majority sectors. So where men had uh, more of the jobs or uh, a bigger concentration of the jobs. This time around during this pandemic and this economic recession, it's sectors like food and retail services and hospitality and tourism that have been most impacted. And many of the people who hold those jobs in those sectors are women, are black and indigenous and racialized women, are people with disabilities, are people who are migrants and immigrants and refugees. So we're seeing um, because of which sectors were impacted, that gives us a clue into who is being impacted. Okay, right. And in your report, you cite the term she-session, I think, to describe that. So could you elaborate a bit more about what that term means and why it's appropriate for us to use it specifically for these gendered impacts of COVID-19? Yeah, and so the person who coined it are, is Armenia Nazin, and she is an incredible economist who's been really spearheading this conversation in Canada. And she, she rightly points out, uh, as I was mentioning, that we've never seen a recession that has had such a dramatic gendered impact, specifically impacting uh, women majority sectors. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, in an era of slow growth, so even before this pandemic, we were not growing, the economic rate or the rate the economy was growing was not high. It was slower, but it was, you know, consistent, if you will. Uh, but it really made us realize we need all hands on deck. We need every single person to be able to realize their full potential. Um, and so what this crisis is showing us is women have been disproportionately impacted. So mathematically, for us to get back to pre-COVID levels and actually surpass that and thrive as a society, we need to address their needs and ensure that they can recover. Uh, you know, the line that Armenia Nazin says is, this is a she session, we need a she covery. And she goes on to say, we can't have a she covery without childcare. So that's something, for example, we've seen um, as one of the things we need to push forward for in this recovery period. So I think that reflects in how you take an intersectional lens then in this report. Can you talk to us a bit more about why the pandemic specifically requires solutions in so many different domains rather than just improving jobs or taking action in one sector? 
So intersectionality, a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, is really at the heart of this report because we know a one-size-fits-all approach won't work. It can't be just, uh, you know, we do a lot of work in gender because that's our area of expertise, but we know that gender is insufficient. It can't be the only thing we think about. So we have to think about race and disability and immigration status. Part of the reason why we need to work across multiple sectors is the forces that create inequities are not contained to just any one sector. They are across sectors, whether it's the healthcare sector or it is uh, jobs, like you mentioned. And so for us, we looked at these recommendations. There's quite a few. There's 27 recommendations and eight pillars, but it's grounded in the work we do across the country in 300 communities. So the reason why we talk about housing, for example, in the report, a lot of recovery reports are not talking about that, but we see firsthand, first of all, is a critical social determinant of health. But if people are worried about having a safe place to live or paying their rent, how are they going to think about having uh, rejoining the labor market? Um, and for us, you know, all of these things are intertwined. Um, housing is very important for mental health and physical health, right? So these are all interconnected. Um, we also talk quite a bit about um, jobs and the economy and uh, working conditions. But some of the other things that we talk about, again, that other recovery plans might not consider, but we see as fundamental, is addressing systemic racism in all its forms. So in particular, we call on and amplify uh, the calls to justice and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the calls to, um, sorry, the calls to action, um, the calls to justice and the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, and also the calls to action from the Parliamentary Black Caucus. Black and Indigenous communities have been talking about for centuries what needs to change. And perhaps if we had those recommendations in place before this crisis, we would be in a different place. But I think this crisis has shown us that is non-negotiable. For a just society, we need to have that at the core. And it's only then we can have an economic recovery. And I think something else I just wanted to flag for your listeners, we talk in this report about hate crimes. So during this pandemic, hate crimes have been increasing. Um, I read a recent report that hate speech for example, against people of Chinese descent has increased by 600%. And so if we are living in a climate of hate and fear and violence, whether it's gendered Islamophobia or anti-Black racism or anti-Indigenous racism, that is not okay. And we're not going to have an economic recovery. So we really start to push back on it just being jobs. We have to think about the context that we're having this recovery in. The final point I'll raise is around gender-based violence. We talk about that because that's something we've seen across the country. We offer shelters and we also offer housing services. It has increased during this crisis, right? And so for us, um, again, we can't have an economic recovery. We can't talk about having women go back to work if this is the climate that people are in. We have all of these injustices and through the intersectional lens, we're able to see where we're kind of failing in society, failing to stick up for indigenous people, failing to stick up for people who are experiencing hate crimes. Where do we start? Is taking an intersectional lens approaching all of these issues simultaneously? How do we kind of work from the bottom up? Because evidently we don't have a good structure to build off of. Yeah, this is a, such a great question. And, you know, something, you know, I was puzzled with, right? Because the moment we're in, it seems so challenging, so overwhelming, where to begin. And so for us, one of the key things we talk a bit about in this, actually quite at length in this report, is the need to have diverse voices in decision making. It's not enough to just say, okay, there's all of these concerns. 
let's just start working. If the communities who are most impacted are not at the table, are not in the room, are not guiding those uh, post-pandemic policies, we will have gaps, we will have missed opportunities, and in fact, we may do more harm. And so I think the first thing is to ensure, um, and we talk about this, is to have a gender diversity at the decision-making table, but not only that, intersectional representation. We need to have our decision-makers, not necessarily just look, but be what people across this country are um, representing or, or the different communities that they're part of, right? So diversity and decision-making. Um, and then after that, or part of that, is to also have disaggregated data. So that's really important. Coming from a research background, uh, I will say one of the challenges in writing this report is a lot of the data where we did have gender data, it was very binary. It was either you know the impacts on men, the impacts on women, but it wasn't really talking about the diversity of gender. So gender diverse communities, not two-spirited peoples. And so we were seeing a lot of gaps even in our analysis because we didn't have that data. And then on top of that, so that's the gender piece, but we know we can't have a one size fits all approach. You know, as a South Asian woman, my experience navigating this world looks very, very different. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, there's privileges that I have in the sense that I have attained uh, university education or that I'm able-bodied, right? And so we need to have all those different dimensions to our data sets to really understand, you know, when we put out this policy, who did it impact? How did it impact them? What were the gaps? Because I think one of the challenges we've been seeing during this crisis is we've seen, you know, I've never seen movement quite like this. And, you know, talking to a lot of people who have been working in this space for 30, 40 years, you know, many people are reporting, we haven't seen government entities move at this pace. And the reason why we need to move at this pace is the emergencies that are present, of course. But we can make a lot of mistakes if we move so quickly without understanding um, you know, first of all, who's at the table and how is this impacting them, but also if we're not tracking the data. And so what we're seeing a lot of times is policies are being pushed out. The communities tell us, because we work in communities across the country, this is not working for me or this is one of the gaps. And then we do a feedback loop. But we could be even more effective if from the beginning we were thinking about all those factors. So then when we have built this team of people who are representative of the issues, we have disaggregated data, we have collected this foundation where we can start to mobilize change. How do we actually ensure that these problems in society or the ways that we've failed or are going to be solved for the long term? I think the solution lies in what has been working so far. So when I think about what has been saving us during this crisis, it's been absolutely care work in all its forms, whether how critical childcare was for restarting the economy, or safe schools are through the incredible work of teachers and educational administrators in making that possible. I know a lot of young people across the country have been doing a lot of mutual aid work, right? Um, you know, supporting the communities around them. But at the core of all of that is care. So I think care has shown us where we need to go. And another form of care is the social safety net. You know, when I think about the income supports that have come out, that have saved families, that have saved organizations, employers, I think this crisis has really shown in a very remarkable way how important it is to have a strong, robust government, right? A collective entity that works for all of us, that, you know, brings together everyone's interests as well as skills and expertise to take coordinated action. To address a pandemic of this nature, you need to have a strong, coordinated body. And so I think 
moving forward, we need to let things like the care work guide our efforts, but also the social determinants of health. And you know, this is of course my public health background coming through, but it's also smart policy making. Um, when we think about the dividends in terms of health, but also economics, it's a no brainer in terms of investing in things like clean water, decent housing, good jobs. And that's where we need to focus on, I think, for the long term. Public health has been put in such sharp relief during this crisis, how crucial public health is. But I think sometimes the parts of public health that people are not thinking about, in addition to testing and contact tracing, is how do you do prevention? Well, number one, social determinants of health. So that would be my you know, go-to answer there. In your report, you also mentioned that traditionally, or as has been presented by the pandemic, women do tend to take these care roles. Wondering how we can restructure that perception or if that's even possible, because it seems like the effects of the pandemic are hitting them the hardest because of those roles that they tend to take traditionally. Yeah, so this is such a interesting and complex question. You know, first off, there has been so much placed on Uh, women, two-spirit, and gender-diverse people. They have been showing up for their communities, for the country, in the healthcare system. When you look at globally, 70% of uh, the global health workforce is comprised of women workers. So that's nurses, technicians. Um, In Canada, we know of something called the five C's. So over half, 56% of women workers in the country are working in occupations like cleaning, cashiering, catering, caring, and so many related functions and part of it is socialization the way in which society over many generations has placed particular gendered roles Uh, but then also when we think about you know different occupations there is a phenomenon where if a sector is more and more comprised of women, and again, I apologize around the binary nature just based on the data that is available, there is almost a devaluing of that work. And there is an underpaying of that work. Despite the important societal contribution that labor provides, it's almost seen as well of course you know women will do it um a lot of you know parents have been talking to i'm not a parent myself but i've been hearing especially moms uh saying it almost felt like some of the inaction for example around safe schools there was almost this thinking perhaps people in society just think we'll just take on this additional labor again right um i'm hearing stories across the country People are waking up at, let's say, 4 a.m. and, you know, waking up before their children so they can do some work beforehand for their paid job and then, you know, help with homeschooling and then stay up to like 12, 1 a.m. So people are working instead of eight hours, like 18 hours, right? And so I think part of it has to do with the devaluing of women's work. You know, it's quite troubling, right? Because that is what has been saving us. We talk a lot about the economic shutdown. But guess what? People were still working. They just weren't paid. They were doing that life-affirming, life-giving work of care. Uh, So I think um, there's many, many reasons for it. But one of the things I'd like to see moving forward is that we actually pay people appropriately for this essential labor. And we start giving them the respect organizationally, institutionally that it deserves. Great. I think that goes back to what you were speaking about with the she session. So the burden of this and kind of the biggest impacts of the pandemic are falling on the shoulders of women and people who do experience gendered impacts. 
I also want to ask you a bit about the product of this feminist economic recovery plan. What have been the next steps, the plan once it's been published, and what kind of dialogue have you experienced? So when we put out this plan at the end of July, we were curious. When I started 2020, this was not part of my work plan. This is not what we anticipated. It was something that was created in the midst of this and born in the midst of this pandemic. I think people, first of all, just appreciated that it just made all the conversations we were having undeniable because all the data, whatever we could find, we consolidated that all. And then not only did we do that, we showed actions that can be taken. And we were very intentional in the sense like we knew this was not going to touch every single aspect of what a feminist economic recovery plan could be, but it started the conversation. And I'm so proud to say that it actually not only started the conversation in communities across the country. So we have 32 YWCAs and many of the YWCAs took this plan and also we're doing some work even before our plan came out for example the incredible work of uh, ywc's in alberta um, but then also took this plan to take it to stakeholders in their community local chambers of commerce or government um, you know local municipalities or provinces or territories to say hey what are we doing as this level of government for a feminist recovery um, and then we also told um, organizations like hey this is a framework based and built on the services that we provide across the country like i was mentioning because of the work we do uh, but we said you know we don't do work on foreign policy but there's probably a feminist recovery angle there we don't really do work on climate change but there's probably an angle there um, and so we really encourage people to have that conversation fast forward a couple months uh, September 23rd, the federal government announces in their throne speech a commitment to pushing forward a feminist and intersectional approach to post-pandemic response and recovery. So we were shocked, we were delighted, we were relieved. Uh, but it showed that when you push and you also take advantage of pushing across the country, right? Pan-Canadian, making it a conversation that does not stop action will be taken up right it's a matter of political will but i think you know especially i would say in august september with back to school it really was top of mind for so many people uh, so since we launched we saw it of course in the throne speech uh, many of the recommendations we put forward so we're tracking that to see whether that goes from words to action because that's the key but we've also recognized a lot of the issues that we work on take for example child care it's something that requires federal leadership but also participation and engagement by the provinces territories and municipalities so we've been also doing our part to talk to those levels of government to say you need to work in partnership yes the federal government can take a leadership role but we need all parts of society to come together so we've been engaging with also labor the corporate sector to see for us every single aspect of society will be essential for the rebuild and the recovery so we want to make sure we give them the evidence they need to think about a gendered uh, response right so it's a multi-level approach we can't just rely on one area of society to kind of take hold and control all the improvements we have to all take action so then building off of that as well how can listeners take the information that you present in the feminist economic recovery plan the eight pillars that you line up to shed light on this issue and actually take action themselves are there any kind of short-term solutions that we can implement or resources that we can tap into to help out 
So first, if you haven't yet, definitely go to feministrecovery.ca and take a look. There's so many different types of recommendations. So if there's one that you're drawn to, do deeper read into it and see how does that apply to your sector. It could be as simple as raising awareness and raising dialogue. Each of us have different communities that we're part of that we can influence, whether it's putting up your hand and saying you're going to do a lunch and learn on this topic in your you know workplace or in your community group is to say um, you know you're actually going to reach out to your elected official and say you want these recommendations if there's certain recommendations that seem to uh, inspire you or resonate with you and then I would say it's also continuing the pressure the reason why we saw some of the momentum we've seen so far is because people didn't let up. On our website, we've actually created an action page so people can easily just put in their postal code and send a note to their elected official. Uh, but the more people hear about this, the more they know they need to take action. And I also think about the power of coalition. So something I've been thinking a lot about is, for example, chambers of commerce, small business owners, they have been severely hit during this crisis. Is there a way as they rethink their recovery to think about diversifying their supply chains, to think about who they're buying different products uh, that they need as a business? And could there be an equity lens? Could there be a feminist gendered lens on those decisions, those business decisions? So it's also kind of thinking, what is your sphere of influence and how can you take a role in addressing the gendered impacts? I'd like to go back and talk about something that you mentioned in a previous answer. So the Feminist Economic Recovery Plan refers to the increased occurrence of domestic abuse and violence amidst the COVID-19 pandemic as the shadow pandemic. Could you talk a bit more about this term and perhaps share some resources with listeners who may be going through something like this or know of somebody that is? Um, I think, you know, the big thing, you're not alone. There's people and communities and organizations here to support you. I think that's one of the, the things that's been quite scary during this pandemic because it's, it's a pandemic, it's an infectious disease. And so people are taking precautions, rightly so, to protect them and their families and perhaps their kids from COVID-19. But what we don't want to happen is that people are at further risk of physical, mental, emotional, and financial abuse, perhaps if they are staying or in close proximity to their abuser. And so we have actually seen uh, domestic violence increase during this time. We really want to just let people know you're not alone. There's supports there for you. Um, so definitely check out our website as a starting point to get more information about that. Thank you so much for this conversation, Anjum. Thank you for joining us. It was great to have you on our first episode. Just wondering if you have any final words that you'd like to share with listeners today. Yeah, thanks so much for having this conversation first and foremost. I think this is such an imperative one and this is one of the big stories of the COVID-19 period that we're all living through. I think what I want to tell people is that there is power in community, in numbers, in moving and mobilizing. When I think about this time period, we're living through history and right now, you know, it's dire and there's a crisis and, you know, we're worried about our loved ones. But there's also an opportunity here because we've seen in very, very clear terms what is not working for us. And so we have the power to reshape and reset where we want our society to go. And I would say especially to the young people who are listening, this is, you know, the consequences of this crisis, of the decisions that are taken during this time, will be with us for quite some time, for at least a decade, if not more. 
if you're inspired, if you're engaged, if you really care about this issue, don't stop. See if there's others around you who also care about the same issues and take action. And that could be as simple as, uh, you know, reading and sharing information to actually going a step further and having conversations, for example, with your elected officials. Um, if there's anything that we at YWCA Canada can do to support you in that journey, please do reach out. Uh, definitely see our plan at www.feministrecovery.ca but also email us um, to see how we can support you in taking further action because again um, you know we talked about this in this conversation every single aspect of society each one of us has a role to play and we want to be with you along that journey thank you for tuning in to our episode today stay tuned for new episodes on your podcast platform of choice you can follow us on Instagram at Juxta Magazine U of T to stay updated and let us know what conversations you'd like to hear. See you on our next episode.